Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you're about to hear is a speech to an audience given in San Jose, California on October 10th, 1970, called Isaiah Predicts Our Day. I hope this delightful speech helps you personally in your study of Isaiah and in the restoration of the gospel and your personal quest to know the Savior. You may also enjoy Dr. Skousen's book on Isaiah, which is a verse-by-verse commentary called Isaiah Speaks to Modern Times, which can be found at your local bookstore or online at skousen2000.com. Now sit back and learn with the audience as we listen to W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! My brothers and sisters, I'm delighted and honored to have the pleasure of being with you again after, I think, about two years' absence. And I feel grateful and appreciative of your presence here tonight because I know that every one of you came after a considerable amount of arrangement and some inconvenience in your busy lives. And I pray our Heavenly Father will have a rich experience together and he'll let let his spirit guide our thinking and open our hearts to that which we will be, we have been assigned to discuss. I never come to California and look into the faces of you wonderful saints without thinking of an experience we had in 1933. Terrible earthquake struck California, Southern California that is, and we all got ready to go back to Utah. (laughs) We knew the end of the world was coming. Scripture said so. There'd be earthquakes, and we'd had one. So we were all ready to go back to the tops of the mountains. There was a great spirit of restlessness moving among the saints all through California. Actually, there weren't very many of us in those days, but we were ready to go back. And um, I was uh, fairly young, but uh, quite impressed with the fact that maybe we'd all be gathering into the mountains again. Suddenly there came a letter from President Heber J. Grant, and it said, if you come back to Utah, you will not be blessed. (laughs) He said, your calling is where you are, and much good is to be done, and you have not been called out of the world, and if we do a good job, you never will have to be called out of the world. I didn't know enough about the scriptures in those days to know he was right. We have a promise of the Lord that if we can keep this great nation, which is our Heavenly Father's headquarters, and these the last days, from going anti-Christ, anti-Messianic, this nation can survive and help build the New Jerusalem. And that is in the 21st chapter of 3 Nephi. That's a promise of the living God to the people of this nation. And there are so many good people here that we must not get the impression from the psychopathic minority that uh, keeps getting the headlines and the television time that they are representative of our culture because they are the off-scourings. And uh, we are impressed in traveling around the country how many fine, wonderful people there are that are waiting for leadership and guidance and inspiration so that they can be gathered together as the great silent majority to keep this nation from being sabotaged and subverted by those who have ambitions to do so. 
We actually are living in one of the most exciting times in human history, and my assignment tonight was to just cover the ground briefly so that we could see where we are, who we are, and what a tremendous job we yet have to do. You see, our Heavenly Father's been talking about us for a long time, and uh, when the prophets of old used to get discouraged, the Lord had just opened up our day. And uh, <laughs> after showing them the trials we would go through, they would then see the day of triumph. And it was, it's interesting to read Isaiah, one of the most difficult uh, scriptures to read, actually, but one of the most profitable. Uh, Isaiah can't stand to talk about his own times. And so he'll, he'll start uh, pushing hard against the people of his own day, and then he'll take a big breath and say, oh, but in the latter days. And then he'll go on for five or six chapters. And then he'll remember, oh, yes, I have to tell these people a few things, too, and he'll come back for a chapter, too. And then he's off again, sometimes 10 and 12 chapters at a time, just talking about us and our day and America. And it wasn't easy for people to understand what he meant in the 18th chapter and again in the 11th chapter, some of those chapters when he talks about the land that is far away, that is hovered over by the buzzing of wings in a land beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. And he'd go on and describe what had happened there, that God would raise up a great, great ensign in the mountains and that he wanted everybody to listen when the trumpet sounded that went out to gather Israel back into its very various places of gathering, the Jews to Jerusalem and the ten tribes of Ephraim to be gathered here. A little hard to read that until we got the Book of Mormon where that wonderful, magnificent and heroic prophet Nephi, having seen the same vision, said to his complaining followers who couldn't read Isaiah with clarity, well, I've seen the same vision and I'll give it to you so that you cannot possibly mistake what the Lord had in mind. So we have an inspired commentary on Isaiah that makes it very easy to read in 2 Nephi. As a result of this, we have fine scholars like Brother Orson Pratt and others taking these scriptures apart for us and making it very easy to realize how much significance our Heavenly Father has attached to this generation. And as I teach your children, some of them, uh, about 1,100 of them, in, at the BYU each week, I want to tell you that's the most inspiring, stimulating, and challenging thing that's ever come to me in my personal or professional life. I've never worked harder in all my life than I'm working right now because your boys and girls just simply draw it out of a person. And if I have the slightest idea that I'm a little fuzzy on a subject, I can't go to sleep at night till I've pegged it right down, because if I don't, I'll need it pegged the following day. <laughs> They're that kind of students. Now, the brethren have emphasized that because this generation is so choice, we must not concentrate them all. We must call them on missions to attend other universities and schools, in order that they can be an influence for good and, and sort of be a focal point, a rallying point for wonderful other young people who do not want to get mixed up in hippieville and revolution and violence and atheism, immorality and some of these strange actions and behavioral patterns that are beginning to characterize our day as we move into the Sodom and Gomorrah epic. That's what we're moving into. 
This is what uh, the Savior was talking about in his final sermon on the Mount of Olives as he said that as in the days of Noah, when the people were so wicked they deserved to be transferred en masse back to the spirit world, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man, 24th chapter of Matthew, and we're moving into it. Now, these people who are leading the parade of satanical um, perversion and ugliness, uh, who look for thrills in drugs and alcoholic binges and overindulgence in immorality, uh, these do not represent the aspirations nor the natural inclinations of the human mind and heart. And the rest of the young people, even some of those who may have been hurt by, by temporarily becoming involved, are looking for someone who stands for decency, that has standards, that looks like a fine person, that has not become involved with the fads of the time. And our brethren have called our young people to that mission. And so every one of them attending universities and colleges out here on the frontiers of the church should look upon their assignment as a mission and should speak up and stand up, dress and uh, comb their hair, if they have some, <laughs> after a pattern that they would feel comfortable with in the presence of the prophet of the Lord. And it was sort of thrilling, uh, as I was driving along on one of my trips, I picked up a radio station and it said, would you like to hear something interesting? We take you to the campus of Brigham Young University where Dr. Ernest L. Wilkinson is welcoming 25,000 students in their opening assembly. It was a newscast. And of course, being our alma mater, I thought I ought to hear what this was. And I heard President Wilkinson say, my young friends on this campus, we have standards. They were set up by the prophets of God. They were not designed to, in any way to deprive you of any element of happiness or opportunity for self-expression, but they were designed to conform to the basic standards that our Heavenly Father has given us. And I want you to know we have those standards on this campus and that we voluntarily support them. And that if there is anyone who would not wish to support them, they're welcome to have their tuition back because we have several thousand students at the gates waiting to take their places. And the student body went into a, a roar of applause. And it went on and on and on and on. And the newscaster just held it on the applause and just let it go and go. Finally, he came on and said, isn't that great? Then he went on with the newscast. <laughs> well, that's what we want our young people to do wherever they are. Take the basic standard and uh, be a light on the hill. And don't be ashamed uh, to be called a square or anything. Just simply say, you have a standard, you're standing for it, happy about it, not ashamed at all. Now, as Brother Monson said at the conference, um, the church styles and the church standards are very sensible ones. They are what is appropriate for the occasion. The standards of the Lord are modesty and sweetness of spirit. And you see down in the Polynesian islands, we have boys serve the sacrament in skirts. 
On the Indian reservations, we have boys serve the sacrament with hair so long that it has to be neatly braided because they are descendants of Lehi. And that's the pattern there. Nobody thinks anything about it. And as Brother Monson said, but in any of our ordinary audiences, if one's appearance is so unique that it will distract from the atonement of the Messiah while you're administering the sacrament, obviously it is not appropriate. Let that be your guide. And I've loved that spirit about the church. Nobody going around with a ruler, you know, but it's a spirit. And uh, I've noticed uh, on the campus we have uh, one or two of the girls whose mothers sent them with inadequate wardrobes. And uh, you'd be surprised how many mothers are involved in these latest styles, not just the daughters. And in any event, I notice they'll come to class sometimes, lovely outfits and very expensive sometimes. Nobody says a word, but they don't wear it again. It's just one of those things, or just kind of an unspoken uh, sense of responsibility. Well. I wanted to share that with you in the beginning of my talk because I'm going to end on a theme very closely related to it at the end of, end of my talk. I, I just want those young people who are attending college out here to remember how important they are. We can't concentrate all our people together. It wouldn't be right. Uh, it's as we were in Southern California in 1933. Um, the Lord has a great blessing for those who stay out in the mission field and serve as, as a fine standard to help those who are looking for a guide, a norm that's high and good and decent and real. Now just uh, back down into the basic theme here of how important this generation is to our Heavenly Father and how much he's talked about it in the past. When our father Adam, who is a very real person and a very distinguished and, and outstanding personality, when he reached the age of 927 years, and they were very real years of 365 days each, he really lived that long. He was only three, three years away from his passing away from this earth. A great conference was conducted in which Jehovah himself appeared beside him and the great congregation of the saints in that day stood up and acclaimed him as Jehovah said, this is Michael of the pre-existence. Your great patriarchal ancestor was your valiant leader on the other side of the veil before you came into this life. And all of a sudden the veil opened up for Father Adam and he saw the total computerized history of the human race for six, for 7,000 years, nearly 7,000 years, right to the end. And he saw our day. He saw our cities. He saw our problems. He saw our crises. And he saw that in the end, God was victorious and so were as many of the saints as would stay with God. The rest were destroyed. Every once in a while I hear people get all worried about the population explosion. That's not the explosion I'm concerned about. The Lord has said get just as many of these fine spirits into the world as you can because we're only about 30 to 35 years away from the fulfillment of the prophecies in which events will happen on this earth so catastrophic that all of the prophets, including Isaiah, have said there will be few men left. So our task is to get wonderful good spirits into the world because the Lord has promised them if they'll just stay with him, he will save as many as he can. His object is not to destroy. But these men who have seen our day have left no doubt as to what's going to happen. So we try to keep it in mind. 
Um, the next prophet that had a great vision of our day was Enoch. And Enoch uh, was very interested in the fact that if this would be the day when massive revelation would come from heaven and out of the ground, out of the earth, would come forth a voice from the dust that would speak to men and bear witness of the great civilizations of the past who had been ministered to by God, verifying that they knew of our time and counseling us to take it seriously. Enoch talked about that. And then we come down a little further uh, to the days of Abraham who lived about 2000 BC, uh, 10 generations after the flood. Uh, Abraham was allowed to see great vistas of the future. Isaac and Jacob, his son and grandson, were also blessed with great visions. But it was Jacob's son, Joseph, who spent quite a bit of time talking about our day because he was talking about his own people. Joseph, who was sold into Egypt in the prime of his life, was given a revelation in which he was shown that just after he died, all the people would go into slavery and that his grandnephew, whose name was given to Joseph as Moses, and his brother, whose name would be Aaron, they would lead the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt on up to Mount Sinai and eventually into the Promised Land. And so Joseph said to his loved ones as he was about to die, have my body preserved as I preserved the body of Father Jacob by Egyptian embalming, and then take my body out with you and bury it in the Promised Land when you reach there. Brother Ritchie, I think we were at Nablus and stood in the spot within just um, a few blocks of where Joseph was buried. Nobody knows the spot anymore, but we know this is the place. and It's right near the ancient well of Jacob, so it's interesting to sit down under the trees there and uh, remind ourselves of these sacred spots and the things that occurred there. And it's just a few miles from Dothan from which Joseph had originally been kidnapped, you remember, and sold into white slavery down in Egypt. In any event, um, Joseph then recorded something else about the latter days. He not only knew about Moses by name and Aaron by name, but he said that his descendants would cross the great waters and settle in a great promised land that was set up especially for his people, and that in that great land they would go through a tremendous uh, historical development. Uh, he knew about the great golden age and all the things that would happen to the ancient civilizations here. And eventually in the latter days he saw the ensign that would be raised up to the Gentiles in America. Now he knew the name of the man who would be raised up and he wrote it in his book. And he said his name will be after my name and it will be Joseph and he will be a direct descendant of me. And his father will also be named Joseph. And he wrote all of this down. And he said he will be very much, or the Lord has told me, he will be very much like the great Moses also of whom I have written. All that was in his writings. Now, after Joseph had died and uh, Moses came along, and, be, and assumed eventually at the age of 80 his stewardship over Israel and led them out of slavery. He got hold of the writings of the tribe of Joseph and read this magnificent section in the, in the writings of Joseph. And so when he prepared his manuscript of sacred history, he put it in the 50th chapter of Genesis. It's nearly one half a chapter in the 50th chapter of Genesis. Magnificent. Only today it isn't there. And it hasn't been since about 600 B.C. 
Who took it away? I suspect I know, but we'll have to wait for direct revelation to be sure. You see, it was 721 BC when the northern ten tribes were carried off by the Assyrians, and that left the tribe of Levi and Judah alone. And they always felt that, that the northern ten tribes had kind of let them down. And I can imagine one of the fine scribes there in Jerusalem going over the ancient records, and all of a sudden he reads here in the 50th chapter of Genesis that, that a Joseph will rise in the latter days to precede the coming of the great Jewish Messiah of David. That's impossible. Those Ephraimites, they get their fingers into everything. They're even trying to take over the Messianic era. And I imagine he just plopped it right out and said, now that take care of that. We don't want the scriptures corrupted by those heathens up north. <laughs> On the basis of some rationale, they took it out. Now, it didn't do any good. The knowledge persisted. And in the year 1955, the Macmillan Company published a book by Dr. Joseph Klausner of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem entitled The Messianic Idea in Israel. And all this information I'm now going to give you is in the third thousand years. Uh, so if you can't remember the title of that book, as many wanted it last night after I had recited, it is in, the, it is in that book with the material I now want to give you. Dr. Klausner said one of the most fantastic and amazing traditions among our fathers, which is in the Talmud even, is that prior to the ushering in of the Messianic era, or the coming of the Messiah, there has to be a Joseph rise up. And the Talmud calls him Messiah ben Joseph, who will precede Messiah ben David. And ben means son of. So this Messiah, or great savior, or rescuer of the last days, who is a descendant of Joseph, is to rise up and lay the foundation for the coming of the Messiah ben David. Now, Dr. Klausner said, that, that's in the Talmud, and that's in our ancient traditions, and yet it is not in our scriptures. That puzzles me. He said, according to the tradition, he will be killed. He's going to come about the time of Elijah, who also has to come before the Messiah. So this great Joseph and this great Elijah, according to our tradition, are supposed to come about the same time. In Malachi, it talks about Elijah coming. Where is this Joseph from? How did that get into our traditions? He says, it puzzles me. I cannot figure it out. He said, furthermore, we are not the only people that know that there would be a Joseph rise in the last days. The Samaritans have one that goes back further than the Talmud, and it's even more detailed than ours. Dr. Klausner says, this is what the Samaritans say. Now, these are the people that are the fragments of the northern ten tribes that didn't get taken away. There are a few, you know, hidden the rocks and didn't get taken away. And uh, these people said, we are descendants of Joseph, some of us, and uh, we know that in the latter days, before the great Jewish Messiah makes his appearance in power and glory, there will be a Joseph, one of our descendants, who will rise up. And Dr. Klausner, in his chapter 9, says, here's what the Samaritans said about the Joseph of the last days. They said he would be a descendant of Joseph through Ephraim. They even called him a son of Ephraim, which of course was Joseph's heir. They call him also Teal, meaning the restorer, or he who returns, or brings back. Number three, they said he would call the people of the world to repentance and bring back better days 
for all Israel that would be gathered together. Number four, they said this Joseph of the latter days would restore everywhere the true law and bring it to its former validity and to convert all peoples, especially the Jews, to the Samaritan religion. And of course, Dr. Klausner said that was just a native national bias. But in any event, um, that is what the Samaritan said. Now Dr. Klausner said this is a great challenge to us to find somewhere, since it is not in our scripture, the origin of this tradition which is written right into our Talmud. And the Talmud, of course, was written after the Jews were separated, or rather dispersed, uh, following the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans. They then spread around. Uh, they first wrote a commentary on the scriptures to help these scattered Jews understand the scriptures from Palestine. And when they were finally evicted from Palestine, they went to Babylonia, and uh, that's the Babylonian Talmud, which is generally read now um, among Jewish scholars. But it talks about the coming of Joseph of the latter days. Now, Dr. Klausner is dead, and this I regret. For I know of no greater satisfaction or pleasure than making an appointment with him and sitting down and saying, Dr. Klausner, I have good news. Joseph has come. Elijah has come. The Messianic era is near. Now maybe Dr. Klausner knows all about it, where he is now, but in any event, he was one of those scholars that was expecting Joseph to come. And it would be a tremendous thing one day to write a, a tract, which we could take to our friends in Jerusalem. It would carry the headline, Messiah ben Joseph has come. And that's the news. And he was named Joseph. His father's name was Joseph. He was a direct descendant of Joseph through Ephraim. And we learned to our amazement that he was also part Jewish. Now you wouldn't know that unless you read the 11th chapter of Isaiah. The 11th chapter of Isaiah says uh, that the root of Jesse, Jesse of course was the father of David and Jewish, that the root of Jesse would be a person who would rise up in the days of the Gentiles, which would be the latter days, and would perform a great service for God in raising up an ensign to all the nations to gather in Israel and perform a great labor. Uh, this is the same chapter that talks about the rod of Jesse and the stem of Jesse, which is Jesus Christ. And the rod is um, um, a person yet to be revealed. Now, when the brethren asked Joseph Smith, will you tell us about this? What is the stem of Jesse? He said, it's the Savior. And then what is the rod? And he explained that man's calling. Then they said, what is the root of Jesse? I want you to see if you can visualize the feelings of Joseph Smith, untutored, humble farm boy who began like Samuel of old in his early youth to be called of God by direct revelation as early as his 15th year. And as God poured out knowledge into his hands to share with his fellow men, I want you to just think for a moment what it was like as God told him through ancient scriptures who he was. And here he would, just like Jeremiah of old, he would be dictating these revelations to his scribe as God gave them to him. And it was talking about him and what he would do, what his mission would be, 
and how important it would be. He was only 23 when he was translating the Book of Mormon, and there's a lot of it in there about him. When Jesus appeared as a resurrected being to the Nephites, he talked about Joseph Smith. When Moroni was finally finishing the book and closing it up, he addressed one whole chapter to Joseph Smith and said, now, I want you to pay attention. I'm going to tell you how to handle this when you get it. Can you imagine how Joseph felt? Now, he received a great number of other things. Not at any time does he talk about himself. Never did he stand up on a sermon and say, these passages are talking about me. And when the brethren said, who is the root of Jesse? You should read in the Doctrine and Covenants who he said it was. He said, this is the servant of God raised up in the latter days to receive the keys for the gathering of Israel and to perform a labor uh, for the Lord in uh, spreading the gospel among both Jew and Gentile and the descendants of Lehi. It's something like that. Never did say, uh, <coughs> brethren, um, that's... Uh, <coughs> um, that is I. <laughs> he never said it. And yet all you have to do, in fact, Orson Pratt and Parley P. Pratt used to come to the prophet and say, obviously this is your mission, this is your assignment. Can you see this in Isaiah? And Prophet Joseph would just put it aside. Because in one of those revelations it talked about him being killed too. And Joseph knew this from his early years, that martyrdom lay ahead for him in this particular assignment. Well, in any event, it's kind of interesting to know that we're not the only people who know that there would be a Joseph in the last days, and that the great Jewish scholars among themselves have recognized that that is their most ancient and respected tradition, that before the coming of the great Jewish Messiah, Ben David, there would be a Messiah, Ben Joseph, who would come about the time that Elijah would be revealed. Now, I would just want to go very briefly uh, through the life of this person. See, we don't really know who Joseph Smith was. You don't even know who you are. You ever stop to think of that? All we know is that he must have been extremely valiant in the pre-existence. And right toward the end of his life, the Lord revealed to him who he had been in our previous spirit life, in our life in the pre-existence. And uh, he told the saints that he had been told, but he said he would not reveal what he had been told. He said, that really would be a test of your faith. So he said, just carry on. We'll all know each other better when we all get over there together. I want, you to, I want to just spin through the life of this man, 24 years of prophetic administration. I want you to just notice what happened to this person. This is a great human experience. First of all, uh, Isaiah said he would be an unlearned person. Joseph had said his name would be Joseph and his father's name would be Joseph. And Isaiah said he would be unlearned. So here's where we begin. With no opportunity for anything but the most rudimentary education, this Joseph was launched into his ministry as a teenager while still unlearned. And so was Jeremiah, and so was Enoch, and so were some of the others. Joseph was not the only one. Before he was 15, he had seen both the father and the son. Because over in France, they had just passed the law a few years before making atheism the national religion of France. And then when the people began to all fall apart, they legalized uh, God, said it was all right to believe in him if you had to. Now that was the environment into which this young man was being projected. This would be a day of atheism, not of many gods, but of no god at all. 
And so by the time he was 15, this boy had been allowed to see both the father and the son. And it was important that the father introduced the son because other inspired angelic beings have appeared and have spoken in the first person, which is a pattern of the priesthood. And like John the Beloved on the Isle of Patmos, he thought he was seeing the Savior when he was not. Do you remember that? The angel came and said, I am Alpha and Omega, I am the beginning and the end. And down went John on his knees. He said, this is my glorified, resurrected Lord. The messenger said, would you please get up? And so he went right on again. He said, I am Alpha and Omega, I am he who was slain before the foundations of the world. And John says, this has to be the master. I, just, I love him. And down on his knees he went again. Finally, the messenger stopped. <clears throat> He said, John, will you please stand up? I am one of thy fellow servants, a prophet. Please listen to the message. <laughs> this is priesthood pattern. He was delivering the message in the first person, but, it, but the person delivering it was not the Messiah. It was an angel. It was most important that when the Savior appeared to the prophet Joseph Smith to usher in the last dispensation, which prophets have been talking about since the days of Adam, that this young person have a, an objective scientific witness that the personage that he saw in power and glory was not an angelic being. And he had the benefit of the father himself standing there and not saying much. All he said was to call Joseph by name and say, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And then the son said, Joseph, what do you seek? And Joseph said, I was so frightened, I couldn't speak. He really only came to ask which church to join. He just wanted a little feeling in his heart that he should be a Methodist or an Episcopalian or a Baptist or a Catholic. He didn't ask for this at all. And he said, it was only when I got possession of my speech that I finally said, I just wanted to know which church to join. <laughs> and that's when the Savior said, my son, my, speech, my church is not yet back in the earth. It is gone. And now my children are being taught many things which are corrupt and not true. But... You will live to see my kingdom restored in all its power and glory. There isn't a single word to indicate that Joseph Smith knew at this time that he was to have a part in it. It was not until three years later when the angel Moroni ministered to him that he was told that his name would be known for good and evil, that he would have the responsibility and if he were righteous and fulfilled his calling, it would be through him that God would do the work that the prophets had been talking about down through the centuries. And this, of course, was a frightening assignment and he worked out his life in fear and trembling. In fact, it wasn't until the year that he was martyred that Joseph Smith said, the, the fear of fulfilling my assignment has now finally left me. Seems like now when I ask the Lord for anything, I get it immediately. Just seems like uh, he's filling me full of light more than ever before. I seem to be acceptable to the Lord now. He was acceptable. And he was at the end of his mission. But that's ahead of my story. 
By the time he was 17, he had received his first five visitations from the angel Moroni. You see, this is just like the manifestation of the power of God to his prophets in ancient times. When he had reached 21, he received the ancient gold plates of Mormon on which were inscribed in Reformed Egyptian the historical elements of the Nephites and the Jaredites. By the time he was 23, the inspired work of translation had been completed. Studies show that he did this translating at the phenomenal rate of more than 4,500 words per day. You ever translate the wars of Caesar from Latin to English or done, done a little Spanish? You know what 4,500 words of translation means? Isaiah said he will do it as an unlearned person by the gift and power of God and men who are learned in that day will say that they cannot read the book and that's exactly what happened. This was also the year that he and an associate were invested with the holy priesthood of God about which they knew nothing. They had to be instructed in it. Hands were laid upon their heads by holy beings. They had their wonderful transfiguration experience just as Peter, James, and John had done. They were ministered to by holy beings who held this priesthood, conferred it upon them, and once again the chain of authority was back in the earth. When he was 24, the necessary direction was given from heaven to set up the church and kingdom of God on earth as foreseen by Daniel. Cut out of the mountains without hands, so to speak, a stone rolling forth to have eventually enveloped the hearts and minds and loyalty of all mankind. That very year he launched the first missionary journey to the Indians to inform them of their magnificent history as reflected in the pages of the Book of Mormon. By the time he was 25 he had reached the frontier of western Missouri where the Lord designated the site to be dedicated for the famous New Jerusalem mentioned by Jesus during his ministry. When he was 26, the Lord revealed the devastation which was coming to the United States in the form of the Civil War. Nearly 30 years before the war occurred, it was published by this church, indicating where it would start, the issue that would divide the states, and the fact that the southern states would try to get Great Britain and other countries to help them, and that subsequent to that, war would be poured out upon all nations. This is the prophecy of the coming of World War. This was the same year that he and an associate were shown the glories of the heavens and vision, identical to that shown to Paul and referred to him in 1 Corinthians. When he was 27, he received a code of health laws which proved to be far in advance of the science of medicine of that period. At the age of 29, he was authorized to set up the first divinely commissioned quorum of 12 apostles since the days of Christ. He was also commissioned to set up the first quorum of 70 since the apostolic period. And these were forces and factors and powers in the kingdom of God that not one single Christian church understood or possessed at that time. That same year he published 102 modern revelations from God so that all the world could see what was happening in the earth. Later additional revelations were included until there was a total of 136. When he was 30, he completed and dedicated the first temple in modern times, the building being constructed in accordance with uh, a blueprint revealed from heaven. At the dedication of this temple, now notice this. You see, it's one thing for a man to be a prophet, for a Peter or a Paul to be raised up. It's quite another thing for 500 brethren to see the Christ. It's quite another thing to have women and others enjoy these marvelous manifestations, to be present on the day of Pentecost and see the power of God manifest. That's another thing. 
Whenever God has revealed himself in power, it has not been to one man. It has been to a cloud of witnesses. And I want you to notice this. At the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, Joseph Smith was successful in taking several quorums of the priesthood across the veil, where they all enjoyed the temporary companionship of heavenly beings who ministered to them as in the days of Pentecost of old. It was also in this temple that he and an associate were visited by the Savior, who accepted this temple and um, prepared them to receive the keys to the dispensation of Abraham from Noah, the keys to the gathering of Israel that were conferred upon these two men by Moses, resurrected by the way, resurrected, and the keys of the seeding power and the priesthood from Elijah, resurrected by the way. Remember he was translated, taken up in the chariot ministered as a translating being to Peter, James, and John. You remember that on the Mount of Transfiguration? He appeared in the Kirtland Temple as a resurrected being. And the keys of the seeding power and the priesthood from Elijah, resurrected, by the way. You remember he was translated, taken up in the chariot, ministered as a translating being to Peter, James, and John. You remember that on the Mount of Transfiguration? He appeared in the Kirtland Temple as a resurrected being. When he was 31, Joseph launched the spreading of the restored gospel to the continent of Europe where 1,500 people were converted the first year. When he was 32, you young men in this audience, 32, he saw the whole membership of the church put to flight under an extermination order by the governor of Missouri. He was arrested, condemned to be shot, but escaped after spending six months in the dungeon of Liberty Jail. Liberty Jail. When he was 33, he established a settlement on the banks of the Mississippi River, which became the largest community in Illinois within five years. It was called Nauvoo, the city beautiful. That same year, he visited the President of the United States, but was told there was no redress for the sufferings and losses of the church while in Missouri. When he was 34, he dispatched an apostle to Palestine to dedicate that land for the return of the Jews. As David Ben-Gurion told some of our professors last summer when they visited him down on the Negev, David Ben-Gurion said, you know, the first Zionist was a Mormon apostle. He came here in 1841 and on October the 24th dedicated this land for the return of my people. When he was 35, he was given the complete layout for a holy temple in which the sacred endowment could be administered, considerably more detailed than the Kirtland Temple, and more like the temples that we now have, very much like the Temple of Solomon, as a matter of fact. This was also the year he organized the women of the church in a program very similar to the one set up by the ancient apostles. <clears throat> Most of our people are not aware that the ancient apostles had their own relief society, and uh, it's described in Mosheim. Volume 1, page 90. This same year, the newspapers in Boston and New York published facsimiles from the Book of Abraham, which had been found with some 11 mummies by Antonio de Bolo in the catacombs of Egypt. You see, when God begins moving out and giving gifts and powers to his servants, if you're an honest student, you don't have any trouble finding God in the work that he's doing in the earth. In order to reject the gospel, you almost have to blind your eyes and turn your back on what is happening. These newspapers published his translation of these writings of Abraham found in the catacombs of Egypt. Editors were fascinated with Joseph's translation of these documents. The New York Herald said that he was, quote, creating a spiritual system 
combined with morals, industry, and so forth that may change the destiny of the race. And the president of Harvard University, who was visiting Nauvoo, interviewed Joseph Smith and went home and said, what he has is beyond what I can believe, but I am persuaded that he may be the most influential man of this century. He is of great power in the earth. When he was 36 and while the church was surrounded with great promise of peace and prosperity, Joseph told his friends they would soon be driven out. Their homes burned, and he described in considerable detail their desperate trek to the Rocky Mountains, saying that thousands would die on the way. He indicated that he would not be there to go with them, but that many of them would live to see a great commonwealth established on the tops of the mountains from which the message would go forth to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. In 1843, when he was 37, and this is extremely interesting, you may not have heard this one before, he told an obscure Illinois judge, just a local judge, that he was going to aspire to become president of the United States. The man's name, Stephen A. Douglas. Joseph Smith said, I want to warn you, Judge Douglas, if you ever turn against these people whom you personally know, you will feel the wrath of the hand of God. The church published this prophecy. Stephen A. Douglas, as he became popular and nationally known, ignored it. Riding a wave of tremendous popularity in 1860, Douglas struck out bitterly against his former Mormon friends. Although generally considered a certain winner, all the pollsters of that day, whatever they called them, said he couldn't possibly be beaten. And in an overwhelming, amazing defeat, he went down and Abraham Lincoln was elected president. Sinking beneath a tide of smothering, indebtedness, sickness, and lonely discouragement, Douglas died just a few months after the election. Then in 1844, in his 39th year, 38th year, he was, Joseph Smith was assassinated by a mob at Carthage, Illinois, while he was in the protective custody of the governor of that state. Instead of collapsing as many had predicted it would, the church turned its beautiful Nauvoo over to the burning, looting, shooting mobs, and headed out across the western plains and prairies toward the valleys of the Rocky Mountains, there to, to fulfill its larger destiny. Joseph, meanwhile, had fulfilled every prophecy which the servants of God had recorded concerning him. Even in his death, <clears throat> the scriptures were vindicated. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, the restoration of the gospel was never intended for a small group of people. It was never intended to be just a United States church. And the prophets predicted that eventually, though it would never be numerous in its membership, it would eventually have its members in every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And because the prophets have always said that would happen, the church is now preparing to do it. And the church is now moving out in the most amazing, or along the most amazing horizons and frontiers you could conceive of.
with the miraculous hand of God opening up those frontiers as fast as we can prepare to enter them. When I was in Hong Kong this summer, I find the saints there all practicing their various Chinese dialects. Do you know why? They're getting ready to go into Red China to preach the gospel. Well, that's impossible. Not to God. We're going in. Put it right in your book. That in 1970, <clears throat> what is this, the 10th of October? We're going into Red China with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to gather out every one of the seed of Manasseh and Ephraim that we can possibly find among those great people. And as many of them who are, are not of Israel who will respond to the message, we'll gather them to and adopt them in. And we're going in. In the city of Tokyo, this church is building a skyscraper by Tokyo standard, which will be the headquarters for the restored gospel of Jesus Christ as it's launched into the Asian territories, including Red China. As I heard Brother Benson, who's in charge of this work, say just last Saturday morning, we're going in, and the Lord is ready. All we have to do is get ready. How can it be brought about? Well, let me just remind you of something you may have already forgotten. You notice how the 88th section says you and I are supposed to sit down together and study countries and kingdoms and prophecies and remind our children, talk among ourselves about prophecies being fulfilled? That's one of the commandments we don't obey. In 1965, I wouldn't have given you a plug nickel for the chances of the church to preach the gospel in the fifth largest nation in the world within the immediate future. I knew too much about it. That country was under the hands uh, of a man named Sukarno, whose personal life was depraved and vicious, whose total political and economic commitment was to Red China, who had been fighting uh, Malaysia, uh, people that the British were trying to prepare for freedom. And this man in his scheming, planning, and plotting was intending to turn a hundred million and some odd Indonesians over to Red China. And he got ready to do it in 1965. The plot was to murder all of the top generals. They missed one, and another one was only wounded. The man who was missed was General Suharto. Suharto rallied the uh, Indonesian people, uh, overthrew the, the, the rising communist infiltration in the army. Uh, the people themselves had been keeping lists of those who were hardcore members of the conspiracy and who had abused their women and stolen their things and so forth and who had cooperated with the, the enemy. And that country went through a bloodbath from about 350,000 to a million people were killed that year. And as soon as order had been reestablished, General Suharto had one of his top assistants prepare for his coming to the United States to negotiate with our people over here and establish the necessary financial help and other things they needed to keep their country free. General Suharto's representative arrived in San Francisco. His second stop was Salt Lake City. He went up to uh, 
the office of Ezra Taft Benson at 47 East South Temple Street and ask for baptism. Who converted him? We weren't preaching the gospel in Indonesia. It had been worth the life of a missionary to have taken the gospel into Indonesia while it was under communist domination and communist influence, um, which Sukarno had sponsored. Who converted him? His business partner, who had joined the church two and a half years before, Peter Grimm of the Philippines. Peter Grimm was one of General MacArthur's aides, a very wealthy contractor who had built the Manila Harbor, um, <clears throat> both before and after the war. <clears throat> he had married a Mormon girl from Tooele. She very patiently guided him down through the years until he caught the vision of the gospel and came into it. He couldn't help but share it with his partner who just happened to be the top aide of General Suharto. The word immediately went to President McKay and President McKay said, we will now reap the harvest in Indonesia, dedicate the land. And so Ezra Taft Benson, accompanied by these top government officials and a handful of missionaries, stood there on the island of Sumatra and dedicated the fifth largest country for the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now we have branches of the church in Indonesia for the first time in modern history. It's going to happen in Red China. It's going to happen in Russia. And we're getting ready to go in, and we've got our boys and girls studying Russian so that they can speak the language. They might have to have the gift of tongues in some cases, but meanwhile, they'll have a chance to study a little bit of it. So this great program is going to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Now, the Old Testament is filled with it. Um, if I ask how many of you had, well, why don't we do it just for fun, just to see if we've got anybody who has had the time. You're awfully busy. If I weren't teaching it, I know I wouldn't be able to raise my hand. I'm quite sure. Has anybody read the whole book of Isaiah within the last uh, five years, let's say? One, two, three, four, five. Oh, there are more than I can count. Must be about 25. That's just great. Because... When Jesus appeared on the American continent right after his resurrection to the Israelites who were over here, the Nephites, he said, I want you to study the book of Isaiah because that's the Old Testament prophet that was shown the history of America. Or this land. He didn't call it America. But he said the history of this land. So, this afternoon, just for fun, I was sort of spinning through Isaiah and counting the chapters that are all about America. And they really are kind of exciting. Chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 11, chapter 18, chapter 19, chapter 24, chapter 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, and um, 40, 48, 49, 50, 51, 52. And when he gets through with 52, he talks about the coming of the, of the Messiah in the last days. And he says, by the way, this is the same Messiah that would come earlier. And chapter 53 is that magnificent chapter that describes the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the one that is beginning to help 
many fine, honest Jewish scholars realize that the Messiah really did have to come twice, once in great humility in which he suffered all things at the hands of his own people, the next time in great power, which is still ahead. And that other famous Jewish prophet, Zechariah, said that when Jesus appears the second time, the Jewish people will be so grateful to be rescued by him because it will be right at the end of the war with Gog and Magog. And after one half of their city is ravaged and the armies of Gog and Magog have fought their way right up to the temple which is going to be built over there, Gog and Magog will rest for three, three days. And at the end of those three days, the Messiah will appear. The great Mount of Olivet will split in two. The survivors of Jerusalem will flee through it into the valley on the other side called Jehoshaphat. And there they will gather around this magnificent personality that they had known for all through the centuries would eventually come in their time of crisis to rescue them. And Zechariah the Jewish prophet says as they surround him, they will look upon him and say, what are these wounds in thy hands and thy feet? That's right in the Jewish Old Testament. And he will say, these are the wounds I received in the house of my friend. And Zechariah says that he will, that this message will cause all of the people to go into mourning for a month as they recognize him for what he is, the very person Isaiah talked about in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. So the Old Testament is just loaded with information about us and about our times. They, these men gloried in our great day and the thing that we should do. And so now I close my talk where I began, with us. It is so important that each of us now put our house in order. In having a little breakfast at conference time with uh, some of the brethren, I was so impressed with their confidence. They met with us in connection with a little discussion that we wanted to carry on. And uh, they are aware that we are now going to move into the Narrows. Um, it isn't 30 years from now when we're going to have our trial and tribulation. By the time the, the millennium is ready, we will have built um, Jackson County, the New Jerusalem will be finished, uh, there will have been a, a, a tremendous order established that will be uh, the inspiration of mankind. All that will be done toward the end. Meanwhile, the United States is going to pass through the test described in the 21st chapter of 3rd Nephi. And this test will be not an external attack, but internal revolution. And this test is probably coming quite soon. And our task, the Lord said in the 21st chapter of 3rd Nephi, is to help this nation choose the right course, to not lose confidence in itself, nor in God, nor in his purposes, because if we are successful in that, this nation will not only remain intact, but it will help build a new Jerusalem. That's the promise of God. If we are not successful, and if this present wave of atheism and antagonism uh, toward things that are decent and righteous and moral and good continues, then that same chapter describes the United States as the prophets have seen it.
nearly all the population dead. The saints themselves barely surviving, and its massive cities left mere skeletons to be inhabited by the ten tribes when they come. Not only ancient prophets saw it, modern prophets as well, and some of them have described it. And it's too ugly to even repeat, because as President McKay said, we do not accept that as an alternative. Like Melchizedek, we're going to strive to save our people, and God will bless us in that effort if we'll just put it forth. And so now the challenge is to each of us. Let's look at each of our personal lives. How is our relationship with our Heavenly Father? I don't think mine is as good as I would like to have it. I think there are a lot of things that I could do better. I think there are a lot of things that I miss doing that I, that are the things I've neglected I ought to do. I think there are probably sins of both commission and omission. And I need to talk to my Heavenly Father about it. In fact, I do regularly. I'd like to do my best. Lucifer's major attack at the moment on the, on the church, on all mankind really, but even on the church, is the crime that is second to murder. He doesn't trip us up frequently on the little things. Uh, we live the word of wisdom, we pay our tithes, but there are too many fine high priests, seventies, and elders who are guilty of the offense of unchastity, which robs them of the celestial kingdom and causes the Spirit of the Lord to depart from them. This is such an important offense in the eyes of God that you cannot get forgiveness for it by yourself. You must submit yourself to priesthood channels for the disposition of your case. And this means that you go to one of the judges of the church, who is our bishop, and we confess it, and he does not publicize it, for it's confessed there need be no trial. There is only a trial when there's a charge and a denial. And then a disposition is made of the case. This is the only way this offense can be blotted out. All other offenses can be blotted out simply by going to the person one has offended, if it's possible, not ever committing it again, and asking the Lord to forgive us. It too need not be confessed specifically in public. We are told to confess our sins, but not specifically. 42nd section of the Doctrine and Covenant says, do not attend sensitivity trainings and confess your sins. <laughs> the last verse. It says that you shall go to the person offended and confess it to him, or if it's an offense against yourself and your God, you confess it to your Heavenly Father, you abandon it, you get rid of it, and the sense of guilt will leave you. And there never was a better uh, psychological therapist than our Heavenly Father. And if you really want to get rid of your hang-ups, that's the way you get rid of them. You abandon them. Wipe them out. Now, it's so important that we do this because at the beginning of the millennium, 
Our Heavenly Father says, I am going to show the history of the entire human race a thousand years at a time. This will precede the judgment. There's a great judgment right at the beginning of the millennium. All of the resurrected people will be there. All of those who are yet living on the earth in a mortal state will be present at this conference. All of the spirits who are not worthy to be resurrected until the end of the millennium will also be there. This is all described in the 88th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. And it is at that time that we will see the panoramic vision described by John the Revelator in which all of our lives will be shown in detail. Not only what we did, but what we thought. And when that happens, it isn't going to be very difficult to judge us afterwards. For then everybody will know us as we know ourselves. You know, that's pretty scary when you stop to think about it. Not only everything that you've ever done, but everything that you've ever thought. But there's hope in it. And this is it. In this widescreen panoramic vista vision in color, you're going to get a chance to see Father Adam and Eve, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, uh, Moses, and so forth. And you're going to enjoy seeing the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. You're going to see the spreading of the gospel on the earth and the great apostasy. You're going to see the reformation and then the restoration. But you know when you're going to get really excited? When it gets to January the 20th, 1913, I'm going to be focusing on little Raymond, Alberta, Canada, and a little brown house across from the Kirkham house. And I'm going to be watching that little fellow born at 40 degrees below zero as he comes into the earth. And I'm going to be very interested to kind of watch him uh, through his chubby cherub stage and so forth, and when he had the measles and fell off the top of the barn and a couple of things. And I'm going to be very interested to see whether or not uh, um, everybody's going to get to see me steal 50 eggs from my primary president, Sister Bacon. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> Because if they do, I fell and fetus will be shown too, so at least we'll be comforting each other. But the great thing about this revelation is that every once in a while you'll disappear from the screen. Every sin that you've been able to overcome and bring under the atonement of the Messiah will be blotted out and not shown. And that's going to be kind of interesting as your family says, Hey, Dad, where did you go? <laughs> and you say, Oh, wait a minute, I'll be back. I'll be back. <laughs> and in your heart of hearts, you'll say, Thanks, Heavenly Father. Shed many a tear over that period of my life. Most everyone has said, shed some tears over some foolish, stupid things they've done. We're all guilty of some offenses. As Paul says, he who denies it is a liar and there's no truth in him. So being all truthful sinners, why, here we are, working out our salvation as best we can. Nobody should get discouraged. And if one has committed serious offenses, follow the program of the Lord, bring it under the atonement, blot it out. Because even the offense, even a moral offense, doesn't mean one has lost everything. One has lost something, and something very precious, but not everything. And the Doctrine and Covenants makes that very clear.
Don't ever give up and don't Lucifer, let Lucifer tell you you are unworthy to continue in the program of the Lord. Get yourselves straightened out. Now, that's with reference to ourselves personally. Now, what about our families? Are we holding our regular home evenings? Are we keeping our boys and girls around us? Are we discussing what the brethren are saying in general conference about the mission of our young people attending uh, the local colleges and so forth? Are they in the spirit of a mission? And are they studying hard and being good students and being good representatives of the standards that the Lord has given us for happy living? That's important. Talk about the practical things with them. Discuss the gospel. Let them catch the excitement of living in a day that the prophets and apostles of ancient times talked about with the greatest enthusiasm. And then what, what will happen to our little family if we get any kind of a crisis? Do you have your two, two years supply of food? Really? How about one year? One month? I'd have some if I were you. And in the process, don't forget water. Dr. Nayardi told me that during the Hungarian Revolution, men would have given uh, their right arm for a bucket of water, any kind of water, slop water, any kind of water. They'd boil it and clean it, but water. They had food, but no water. And when it would rain, they'd go out in the street and in the bomb, uh, in the shell holes, anything to scoop up water. Don't forget water. Because in these large population centers, if anything happens and there's an earthquake or anything and the water becomes tainted, uh, sometimes very difficult to, uh, to get anything that's usable. In any event, think a little bit about that. What about your financial situation? Are you being prudent and careful? Don't get yourself out on a limb where you are not flexible. If you're making investments, just say to yourself, could I afford to lose this? If this didn't work out, uh, have I uh, hanged myself economically? If so, it's too big for me. I must cut the investment back. I said this last night to an audience in the Tri-State Center up in Oakland, and afterwards an investment broker came up. <laughs> and he said, Brother Skousen, let me just ask you something. I'm just about to invest the following, and I'm, I'm doing it tomorrow. I said, let me ask you something. Does it look like a sure thing? Absolutely. I said, if it failed, what would it do to you? He said, I'm bankrupt. In fact, it'd be worse than that because I have many friends who've gone in with me. I said, just remember what the brethren say. Whenever you invest anything, assume that you've lost it. Then you'll come out all right, no matter what happens. Don't speculate with any more money than you can afford to lose. You'll be all right. Because the prophecy of Heber C. Kimball was that the thing that would trap the saints just before the great crisis into which I think we are now moving would be unnecessarily risky speculation. So think about that a little bit. And then let's be sure that we are keeping ourselves in conformity with the pattern for happy living that the Lord has set up. Let's love one another. Let's tell our sweetheart how much we appreciate them. You know, it's a great thing to go into the temple of God and take a sweetheart by the hand and be joined for time and all eternity. And then we should be on a perpetual courtship. And we get so busy, we stop courting sometimes. And the mother's so busy raising the children, she stops being a sweetheart. She doesn't really take care of herself. 
She doesn't really try to keep her husband in love with her. She doesn't sometimes really um, show that she loves him by going the extra mile and cooking the little extra special things that she knows he likes and having clean clothes and a pleasant home to which he can come after a very hectic and frustrating day. And sometimes a husband under the pressure of the life that's, that he's having to live in the very competitive society in which we live comes home cross and says things that on Mother's Day he always regrets. <laughs> and it's never possible to say them back and he snaps when he shouldn't snap and he takes out his frustration sometimes on his children and in the things he says to his wife. Priesthood holders are called to be good husbands and good fathers. And none of us are born with these attributes. We have to develop them. And so we just say, it might shock our wives sometimes, but just say once in a while how great it is that you found her and, and that you've been building together. And if we've fallen out of love, this happens, you know. You might just find that really um, you don't matter that much to each other anymore. Stop. You've got to matter to one another. You're going to do this for time and eternity, and that person that's over there has got to be really exciting to you across the table. Someone to be missed when you're away. Keep it that way. The Lord intended it so. And just as Abraham loved Sarah all his life and mourned so much when she died at the age of 127, that's a pretty good courtship, you know, when you think about it. So also we should emulate our great ancestor and keep alive that wonderful spirit of sweethearts that we started out with. It was so exciting to get married, you remember? Okay, must stay that way. This is joy in your posterity and the one with whom you have your posterity. They must go together. So, let me then close on this thought. Among the brethren there is a great spirit of confidence. Among the saints there is a great spirit of restlessness. Stay close together, attend to your meetings, pay your tithing, have your family prayers, do the things that God asks you to do. If you teach, try to be an outstanding teacher. If you're a bishop, love the people of your ward. If you're a counselor, give your bishop the finest counseling you're capable of after long prayer and sometimes fasting. Whatever you're calling, do it the way the Lord wants you to do. Be a valiant servant. That's the call. Now this restlessness moving among the church is separating families. We're getting some strange things occurring. It's taking our children away from us by uh, getting the, a generation gap going exactly the way Gus Hall and his cohorts uh, planned to do it in 1959. They sat down and they said, now it worked in Cuba, we'll work it in the United States. Let's start, start the Castro and the Chekovara beards. Let's get the slovenly clothes. Let's get everything as a token of protest. And let's get the clenched fist salute going and, let's, and eventually they adopted the symbol of, the, of the, their peace symbol, which means capitulation, giving up without resisting conquest. And many innocent people have been taken in these things, fine people. And uh, 
So we kind of remind ourselves who initiated the thing, who started it. And it was designed to separate our children from us. It was designed to get a generation gap going. It was designed to mobilize the youth so that in April 1960, J. Edgar Hoover came out with his pamphlet telling exactly what you could expect in the 60s and even more so in the 70s. And when I became editor of the National Police Magazine, I hit it over and over again. Riots are coming. They're gonna do everything they can to steal away the virtue and the strength and the decency and the integrity of our young people. And we've been saying it for 10 years now. And of course, this is precisely what they were successful in doing with a certain percentage of our young people. So let's keep ours close around them. And then let me just remind you that after we've gone through the travail, and after we have sort of gone through the thresher, there will only be 50% left. Our Heavenly Father has warned us through his Son who told the parable of the ten virgins that five would be foolish and let their lamps go out, and that when they knocked on the door of the Messiah to joyfully say that they were sorry they were late, they were trying to get a little, borrow a little oil. But nevertheless, they're members of the church and so glad he's finally come, he will kindly but firmly say as he closes the door, I'm sorry, but I don't know you. I didn't see you in San Jose when the state president asked for some help. I didn't see you in the mission field after you were called. I don't recall your being present at tithing settlement in the Christmas season year after year. I love all of my children, but those who are at the feast are those that I know, and the door will close. So as I say to my students, and I say to you, I'm so anxious to be in, in that 50% that makes it. I want my children to be there. I want my sweetheart to be there. I want all my students to be there. I just don't know anybody that, but what I want to be there in the 50%. But the Lord has never promised us the whole church, only half. My prayer this night in all solemnity is, that whatever offense we have toward God this night, we will abandon, get rid of, go to our bishop, do whatever we have to do but cleanse our lives. That we will resolve this night to be custodians and good stewardships of ourselves, our families, and to whatever extent we are able, our neighbors and friends, whether they are members of the church or just fine people who happen to live next door. And that in all of this, we will constantly remind ourselves this is the end. We are now raising up the generation which will live under the messianic administration of the Savior. And as David O. McKay told the faculty at Brigham Young University, you must treat these young people accordingly. You are not to feed them milk only but meat. And you are to have them understand perfectly the seriousness of their responsibilities in this important time. And so we try to teach them that way. And we do not equivocate. We try not to rationalize and, and uh, explain away things and so forth. We just simply say, thus saith the Lord, and it shall come to pass. And so my prayer is 
that we will live worthy of our testimonies. We know God lives. We know the gospel is restored. We know that Jesus is the Christ. We know that the Jews are returning to Jerusalem. We know that we'll be in China, that we'll be in Russia, that God in his wisdom will open up the way. Then let us live worthy of those testimonies. For that is mine to you this night. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.